Welcome to the Steroids Podcast with your host, Dan the Bodybuilder from Thailand. Steroids Podcast is brought to you by Ultimate Guide to Roids, 109-page ebook by Dan the Bodybuilder from Thailand. Now, for the first time in bodybuilding history, you have someone with no corporate interests and no obligation to please anyone, not walking on eggshells to not offend. Ultimate Guide to Roids gives you the information, the whole information, the whole truth, not a full truth and a half-truth. Full truth. Ultimate Guide to Roids gives you the keys to the Lamborghini, gives you the information, and lets you decide what to do with it. It's a crime this information has been suppressed this long. Now. All right, what's up, dude? You want to talk steroids? All right, you came to the right podcast. You know, it's kind of a fun topic to talk about. I'd say most people you know, that do gear or don't, they're pretty interested in learning about steroids. So it's a pretty interesting podcast. Tell your friends about it. Um, you know, this one is general, general questions. You know, it was pretty fun having, uh, D trend on the podcast the other day. There was good feedback on that. It seems like you guys like that. So this one's just going to be the standard format, uh, general questions podcast. Um, you know, I'll just, I'll just, uh, somebody wanted me to talk about fentramine. Okay. So fentramine is an amphetamine diet drug. Okay. And what it does is the amphetamine effects are very focused in the body, uh, not the mind. So like low euphoria, you know, as an amphetamine or low mental stimulation, but a lot of body stimulation. So things like, um, you know, affecting your heartbeat a lot or, um, you know, affecting, uh, shaking hands, like, like your hand is trembling, something like that. Um, feeling anxious anxiety. That's what I mean by, uh, like caffeine overdose type symptoms. That's what fentramine specializes in, and that's how it would be different from a different, you know, an amphetamine such as Adderall, for example, which is mostly focused in your brain. So fentramine is different in that way. Uh, it's an effective diet diet drug. Like, if somebody was interested in like pure weight loss, you know, and they went to a weight loss clinic, an aggressive weight loss clinic, you know, would could prescribe a combination of like T three thyroid hormone and fentermine to that person, you know, I really wouldn't, if you really want to lose weight, I really don't think that stimulants work that good. What I think is the best method is that you need to get off of any kind of mental, uh, medications. So, you know, these things cause weight gain and they impair glucose metabolism. So things like SSRI antidepressants, uh, antipsychotics like Lamictal, um, uh, there's, there's, you know, any kind of these, um, um, medications that mess, you know, antipsychotics or serotonin system, uh, medications, um, they interact with your glucose metabolism. Uh, it's a very complex, uh, series of events, but there's this thing called the melanocortin system down downstream and basically uh serotonin system runs through the melanocortin system which controls like feeding behavior and um you know a lot of people that are on ssris for example like zoloft or something like that will have a hyper palatability for sugars and carbohydrates and really feel a non-stop um bottomless um, hunger for carbohydrates. And part of this is because of the, uh, you know, what's happening with their melanocortin system through the SSRI use. And basically, uh, their brain not having a, a working sensor for I'm full. Normally a person, you know, when they get full or they become a little bit nauseated or something, but this person's, uh, 
uh, sensor mechanism for um, getting uh, full and then being like, oh, you know, shut off the hunger switch, you know, can be very impaired in people that are taking medications for their brain. Uh, so that's what I'm going to say first. Okay. And then the next one would be that you need to do things like you need to do what your grandma would have taught you to do. You need to eat your vegetables with every meal and you need to eat your fiber and you need to eat your healthy food and you need to, you know, not eat, uh, snacks and things throughout the day. Like I'm telling you like these wisdom things that, you know, like grandma would have told you, you know, these actually apply to bodybuilding and, you know, it might seem a little bit funny that I'm talking about this thing on here because it's like bodybuilders listening or whatever, but it's, it's actually, um, very common. At least 50% of people, you know, are not, it's, they're, they're, they've, I think it's because of the internet. There's so many ideas on the internet that people are not following the basics because the internet has taught them that there's all these, uh, tricks and things to get around following the basics. So, that they can have their cake and eat it too. And they can have, you know, eat, eating their, their junk food, but having a nice body or something, dude, you got to let go of like all that pride about like all that stuff that was like learned on the internet. Cause you know, st- following the standard way of doing things really freaking works. So here's the other thing is that there's a supplement called uh melanotan two. Okay. Melanotan two is, it, it other than tanning your skin, it does two things. It makes you extremely nauseated for about five days after taking a shot, and it makes you like not want to eat food. So, y- if you like think of food, you will not want that, and you may have like kind of like a vomit sensation. Um, this is melanotan too, and then the other thing is that it gives you an erection that sticks around for like four hours. Rich Piana talked about this on his channel too. Um, and it's like a no reason boner. So it's not like, uh, you're, you know, you could just be walking around and it would just be there. And, and this, this happens if you look at the studies on the erectile effects of melanotan two, um, having, uh, like, a they, they measured it like with a device, you know, to giving people melanotan injections and then with a device that went over their penis, uh, measuring it, uh, as, as like, uh, how how much erectile activity there was right and and the when you look at these studies it's it's so much more powerful than viagra and i I would 100 percent agree with that um and and that like it says that like the rigidity was like 98 percent and and like the mean erection time with no sexual stimulation was like 45 minutes or more um so that's a thing like, you know, with like Viagra, for example, you know, it doesn't work unless you're like in a situ- sexual situation, you know, but melanotan, it doesn't, you don't have to be thinking about sex or be in a sexual situation. You just take the shot and then your dick just gets an erection and it won't go down. Uh, so little known fact right there, you know, people aren't talking about that. And then the other thing is that, you know, what I was talking about, the, uh, anti-eating effects, the nausea effects and making you not want food of uh, melanotan are basically unmatched. It is so powerful. So you will not be eating. You will not want to eat under any circumstances, you know, except for the smallest bits of stuff just here and there if you are taking melanotan. Interesting. Um, All right. Okay. The first question is, is from Murda who asks, Hey, have you ever run super draw and Winstrel together? And uh, yeah, I, I have run super draw and Winstrel together. You know, I always run super draw and Winstrel together, you know, stacking orals really works as far as like bodybuilding. So, you, you know, people, what they think is normal or what they think is like the way to do steroids is just whatever they've seen on the internet because, that's all they've been exposed to. So they don't know what they haven't been exposed to. Um, of course not. Like, how could you know what it's like to be living in Thailand and Thai culture if you've never been exposed and been living in Thai culture? You can't. Um, so yeah, I, I, I like, I like Winstraw and Superdraw together to, uh, 
I like to take 30 to 50 milligrams of superdrol per day. Those are really the dosages. You know, you need 30 milligrams in order to get superdrol doing what it's doing. But 30 to 50 milligrams per day, you know, doing that, you are going to notice effects that are going to make you think, damn, this is what I thought steroids were going to be like. You know, and then I was disappointed when I started taking them and I didn't turn into Ronnie Coleman overnight. But... You know, super draw kind of does, you know, not overnight, but in a matter of weeks. So it's pretty incredible. Um, and, and, you know, it's it's funny, like some of these things that I that I talk about, like some supplements I talk about, they can take a while to catch on. You know, I know people have known and believed that super draw was strong from me talking about it. But I'm telling you, dude, um, you definitely could not say that Trembolone is stronger than Superdraw. Like you could, you could say they're the same, but you couldn't say like, yeah, Trembolone can change your body more profoundly in a shorter amount of time than Superdraw. Actually, the opposite is true. One hundred percent, without a doubt, Superdraw can change what your body looks like drastically in a shorter period of time than Trembolone can. It's very powerful. Um, I like stacking orals. Okay. That was why I was talking about the thing about, you know, Oh, you haven't been exposed. You don't know what you haven't been exposed to. And I said that thing about like Thailand, Thai culture or whatever, you know? So if you've never been exposed to the idea of, of stacking orals, then you're going to, you know, when I tell you something like, Oh, you know, stacking orals really works. And you know, people do this. You're going to be like, what? Like, like this is some crazy new stuff and I don't agree with it. <laughs> But the, so the, the whole bodybuilding industry, this is the whole premise that you have to start with is the entire thing is a lie by steroid users to trick non-steroid users or beginners to steroids because they know that those non-steroid users or beginner steroid users don't like them, the steroid abusers who are the big bodybuilders and you know the people who you want to look like. And then so they scam you. Because you don't like them and they don't like you either. And so they scam you and they tell you, you know, all this stuff that is the opposite of what is the truth is the opposite of what is real. It's fake. So with uh, you're, you're going to notice, you know, if you <laughs> the more extreme a person goes with the steroids, this is, this is a theme in the steroids podcast. OK, because it's just reality. And if, okay, so the more extreme you go with the steroids, the more extreme science experiment looking the bodybuilder becomes. Okay, that's not rocket science, you know, and just denying things that are true and being like, I don't agree with that. It's like, yeah, is that unhealthy? Hell yeah, it's unhealthy. Have I, you know, done some really, you know, I've done some steroid abuse that I think, um, you know, I definitely know that's not healthy and I don't recommend it and I'm not doing it now. You know, the steroid use that I'm doing now is definitely not as extreme as the steroid use that I was doing when I was, you know, trying to get to my biggest or something like that. You know, I think over time, you know, people who have taken steroids for a long time, they, they start being, they start being like, Oh man, I recognize how huge a part of steroids is to bodybuilding and, you know, I don't want to just be like taking all these medicine, you know, taking all these um, hormone drugs, you know, all the time and shit, you know, I don't want to do that. So, there, you know, I was talking about this with Detron the other day, too, is, you know, everybody, every bodybuilder at some point goes like, am I a walking pharmacy or something? Or like, I feel like a walking pharmacy or something. So, <laughs> dude, bodybuilding, you know. It's not healthy. Most sports aren't healthy. All right. Like you get hurt. What freaking professional sports player hasn't, you know, like had all these surgeries and stuff, you know, always getting their body cut into, you know, and, and you know, maybe there's more risk to like the internal organ part unless the surgery with, with steroids. But if you're going to be like serious about sports, like really serious, then you are kind of, depending on how serious you are, you are, are kind of sacrificing your body's longevity. So, 
make no illusion. I know a lot of uh, people uh, that give steroid content uh, try to like talk about like my TRT or something. So in the first place, they're lying to you. They're not on TRT. Um, and then they, they will kind of say like, oh, you know, my bodybuilding is healthy or my steroids are healthy or something. Like that is not true, okay? So rather than just tell you something that isn't real, something that's fake and something that's not true, why not just tell you that the steroids aren't healthy and neither is being serious about sports. It's not healthy. And life isn't always about, um, you know, trying to stay away from every risk. Like, do you want to go ski down a mountain? Well, you know, you could die. Okay. But it's pretty fun and you're probably not going to. So you're going to do it. <laughs> so you, you can't just like try to avoid risks. You have to calculate what risks you want to take, uh, which is another good reason why if you're going to take steroids, and I talk about this in Ultimate Guide to Roids, you cannot be putting uh, regular gasoline in a Ferrari. It's going to clog the engine. Once you supercharge the vehicle, which is your body with the steroids, you cannot be doing this like if it fits your macros, um, you know, eating a lot of garbage uh, all the time and thinking you're going to be healthy in any shape or form, that kind of um, unhealthy food is damaging your body more than it's damaging the natural person's body, okay? So, so you know, this is reality. Uh, the, there's a lot of bodybuilders in big denial. They don't want you to think they're drug addicts, and they want you to think what they're doing is healthy, and so they say things that aren't true, okay? Bodybuilding is not healthy, bottom line. Neither is being a serious sportsman. You can't stay away from all risks in life. You have to pick which ones you want to expose yourself to. So that's it with, you know, we're talking about stacking orals, okay? You were saying Superdraw and Winstrol. People aren't familiar with stacking orals. People know that Superdraw is powerful and toxic. Have I stacked Superdraw and Winstrol? Yeah, pretty much every time I've ever used uh, Superdraw. And what else was I running with it? Pretty much Anadrol every single time. Yeah. All right. Next question from Alex. Hey, man, I've been listening to your podcast with the Russian powerlifter Vadim talking about methylene blue and its use benefits. I think he mentioned taking it for three weeks straight, then taking a break. However, he did not say how many milligrams he takes per day for general well-being and disease or sickness prevention. Can you tell me that, please? Thanks. Yeah. So in depression... Uh, treatment dis resistant depression. So like somebody who is on SSRIs, but they're not responding to the treatment. Um, if you add 15 milligrams of methylene blue per day, uh, it makes a profound change in their um, response to the SSRI antidepressant treatment for that person who is having an extreme depression. And so that's according to uh, research on methylene blue um, for uh, sicknesses like malaria, etc. it can be used at much higher dosages, you know, dosages between like 30 milligrams per day up to, you know, very high, you know, hundreds, um, depending on what's going on. It, it's also, you know, it makes your blood be able to carry more oxygen. That's one of the, um, components of methylene blue too. So for certain diseases that have uh, caused low blood oxygen, it's, it can be used for that at various dosages, usually high dosages in that case. Um, but for general well-being, you know, I think that 30 milligrams is a good dosage. You know, be careful, too, if you are on an SSRI and you're taking methylene blue, you can very easily get serotonin syndrome. So when um, you should look at that study and you should decide what you want to do, you know, uh, you should look at that study combining, um, you know, 15 milligrams of methylene blue. But um, so the serotonin syndrome, which is noticed by very high blood pressure and uh, rapid irregular heartbeat flushing. Um, that's a very real possibility for you if you are on an SSRI. So uh, generally combining SSRIs um, and methylene blue is dangerous. Methylene blue is a monoamine oxidase inhibitor. So it makes it so that the enzymes that break down your neurotransmitters are um, they're, the, they're not there anymore. Okay. So, you know, what exemestane does to your aromatase enzyme gets rid of it. So methylene blue does that to the enzymes that get rid of your neurotransmitters. And that's why it makes you feel more happy is because you have 
less enzymes metabolizing your serotonin, your dopamine, your adrenaline, etc. So you feel less depressed. All of a sudden, your neurotransmitter levels are up, and it's very effective, okay? Methylene, uh, I'll tell you the dosage that I like to take of methylene blue. I like to take about 30 milligrams a day, you know, because it comes usually 10 milligrams per milliliter and 30 milligrams a day. You know, I just like taking it. I, I just like taking it and it makes me feel better. It definitely puts me in a better mood, makes my pee green or blue. Um, and, you know, it definitely has antiviral, antiparasitic qualities. If you've got something like a urinary tract infection, methylene blue can definitely help you. Um, you know, so it comes out in your urine concentrated. And, uh, you know, if you have a urinary uh, tract infection and, uh, you know, you'll feel it like burning in your dick after you pee for like maybe 10 or 15 minutes because that methylene blue is going to be, you know, destroying and killing all of the bacteria that is, uh, you know, causing that little thing or something to happen there. So, uh, you know, some of these kind of stuff happens sometimes, or sometimes, you know, people can say, you know, or think they have a swollen prostate, but it's really because they have some uh, urinary tract inflammation. And so in that case, you know, if you're having trouble peeing, et cetera, you know, a run of methylene blue, seeing if it, you know, it clears out any kind of um, bacteria, parasitic in the urinary tract causing that inflammation, it can definitely help. Seen it help people, has helped myself at times um so yeah that's what i recommend that that's me that's my my take on methylene blue for you today and uh next question is from zach is losartan a good blood pressure med to use in case it would start going up i just came across some wondering if it would be useful yeah it is so losartan is a angiotensin type 2 um, receptor antagonist they, these kind of drugs like um, they're generally called like ARBs so like angiotensin receptor blocker okay um, and what the what these do is is they make it so that the angiotensin system which is normally controlling the constriction or the relaxation of the veins throughout your body is kind of blocked and uh, so that that you have more relaxed veins, you know, because normally the angiotensin system is coming in and, and saying, you know, contract the veins, make them hard, um, which increases your blood pressure, obviously. Um, so Sartan uh, meds work very well. Uh, low Sartan, tell me Sartan. I take tell me Sartan, 80 milligrams once per day. Um, you know, so that would be like an, uh, a number one um, blood pressure, uh, remedy. Uh, and you know, one of the great things too, about angiotensin receptor blockers is you're just blocking the receptors. So there isn't a rebound when you come off, when you come off, it's not like you get sky high blood pressure for a while while you're waiting for some, you know, like resensitization or something, you just removed the blocking from the receptor. So now the system can, uh, the angiotensin, uh, can function again, the angiotensin system. So you don't get any rebound, uh, you know, if you go off of it for some reason. So that's a very good thing about angioten uh, angiotensin receptor blockers, Sartan medications. And like, uh, you, you know, so I, I had high blood pressure. I've said this a bunch of times, but I, I had high blood pressure from steroids, you know, long, long time. Usually systolic blood pressure, you know, around like 150, you know, diastolic around 80 or so. And, you know, I've been taking Tell Me Sartan for... Uh, about a two years now, and it's been life changing for me, solved a lot of, uh, problems. I didn't know that my high blood pressure was causing, you know, some of the side effects that I was getting until after, you know, I started taking that. So really made things better for me. So your kidney health, which is something that, uh, you really want to watch out for with, uh, steroids is mainly dependent on your blood pressure. So there's a couple things that are really going to, uh, you know, your heart and your kidneys, the two things that are going to make them function well is maintaining the proper hematocrit so that your blood does not get too thick. The uh, tubules in the kidneys are very, very small and they filter the blood. And if the blood pressure is too high, they burst and it's very, very hard for them to repair. Um, 
And if the blood is too thick, it can't flow through the tiny tubules uh, properly that filter the blood and uh, can also cause, you know, a decrease in kidney, kidney function. So um, uh, exploding the tubules, obviously, uh, decrease in kidney function from high blood pressure. So uh, high blood pressure, high hematocrit, both hurting your kidneys, uh, both, you know, needless to say, mentioning, uh, needless to say, hurting your heart as well. Um, and uh, so I uh, don't let these things be a factor anymore, but they, they were a factor in my steroid using uh, life, um, which is a regret that I have. It's a regret that I have allowing my hematocrit to be too high, not donating blood, not being soldier-like and regimented-like in my blood donation schedule to keep my hematocrit within the normal range. That is something I regret. Uh, the other thing that I regret is not taking blood pre pressure medication soon enough and causing that problem. Now, you know, I just got my, uh, my uh, blood work that I took recently. I think I, you know, I might not have said anything on the podcast, but I did on my Instagram at Bodybuilder in Thailand uh, that... Um, uh, I, I took a month off, you know, of gear and then, and then I, I did a cruise for a couple of weeks and, and, you know, now, now I've been taking some gear again. And, and, um, uh, so I got a blood work, you know, done at the end of that because my hematocrit had got so high because I had chosen not to donate any, uh, or not to do any phlebotomy, you know, during the COVID thing. I didn't want to go to the hospital. I didn't want to be associated with, you know, the fiasco that's going on down there. So, you know, I, I didn't do that for a year and my hematocrit went way too high. Um, it went, you know, it went, uh, about 57, 58, you know, the cutoff is about 50, 50, 51. And, um, I started noticing some water retention from that because it was, you know, hard for my kidneys to then, uh, filter the blood, uh, the kidneys control water retention. So, Anyways, how I solved that, just to let you guys know, is I, uh, over the course of about three weeks, I uh, phlebotomized or uh, got rid of uh, 1.5 uh, liters of blood, so 1,500 milliliters of blood I released from my body and threw in the garbage, um, and that brought my hematocrit level down to a 48, which is, you know, the top of the normal range. And then I, uh, after a couple of weeks of that, went and got my kidney tested and, and uh, you know, my EGFR, which is how you measure the kidney function, uh, the function of your kidneys was um, 111. So uh, over 60 is considered good kidney function. Uh, but my kidney function is that of basically uh, two men. It's so good now, you know, it's. Yeah, I, it makes me wonder, you know, are the, are the steroids making my kidneys function extra good now that I've got my hematocrit and, you know, my blood pressure perfect right now? Uh, because, <laughs> you know, why are my two kidneys processing blood and cleaning it at the rate of four kidneys? You know, that is some serious EGFR score right there. So I was pleased with that. You know... At the beginning of the podcast, I said, hey, bro, you want to talk steroids? Well, you came to the right place. And, I mean, that's exactly how this is right now. I'm just talking steroids with you. See, I'm not trying to, like, protect myself or make make you think that, you know, I don't make mistakes, uh, you know, like with my, my own use from time to time or have to do some troubleshooting or there's nothing I regret or something. I'm talking to you like, you know, I'm I'm talking to you like, your gym buddy or like your lifting partner or something who wants to see you do good. So that's why I'm being so honest with you. I figure there's going to be some of you guys who are going to run into these situations or who may be in these situations already. You're going to hear the podcast and it's going to freaking save you your health it might save you your kidneys. So yeah, you know, I'm, I'm happy to put myself out there and tell you exactly, you know what it's like, things you know i go through or whatever taking steroids <laughs> all right next question um 
Benjamin asks, how long do you usually have to run Nolva and Letro for to shrink a marble-sized gyno down? Can't see it because I'm probably above 15% body fat, but I'm just annoyed. Not on any tests or PEDs at the moment. Never had a problem with gyno. Um, yeah, your your message started getting a little bit uh, contorted or something there. That was weird. But uh, the bottom line is that your body fat is too high right now to be worrying about your gyno. Um, if you are 15, if you are like higher than 12 or 13% body fat, you will have fat around your nipples and the edge of your chest. And it will kind of sag down at times and make it kind of look like, like, I mean, not always. Okay. But it can give a look like, you know, if the nipple is soft or something like that, um, you know, there can be a look where you'd be like, oh, I have gyno, like, you know, what the heck? My nipple's kind of like hanging off my pec muscle a little bit. But you know what? That that can be corrected from, you know, negative calorie dieting, okay? Uh, very much. So the only part of the gyno that will not, like, go away through dieting when you have something like that is, like, a very hard, uh, like, bumpy, rough kind of textured thing inside that is like a rock, Okay. Any other texture or any other tissue that is on the edge of your pec around your nipple, and you might think like, oh, I have gyno, that will go away from dieting, okay? So the nipple is in very estrogenic, progestogenic spot. I, I think you know that, uh, you know, it's not developed in men, but it's like a vestigial organ for breasts in women. So the gland is there, and it has the, like, potential, you know, you're the wrong chromosomes, you know, and you're you have the wrong hormones, uh, but you know at some point you know before the sex of the baby was decided, you know you had the potential there to to like have a breast, and and so that some of that machinery is is there, including like androgen receptor or estrogen receptors being concentrated in that area. So you're going to gain fat around your nipple, like breast area, more so than other areas. Not everybody, but most people do. There are some people that really do not have fat on their chest. You know, if you see a dude like this, you must, you know, what goes through my mind is like, so I guess his sister is just totally flat. But uh, most dudes are going to have some fat around their chest and they're going to notice it's going to be like, um, you know, concentrated on the nipple area. So before you worry about like getting rid of your gyno, Diet it, the fat off your nipple area so you don't have that like kind of like flap kind of like hanging away from the muscle. And you, you know, I, when I say flap, I'm very much, you know, covering a lo long range of how things can look, exaggerating, etc. Um, diet that off. Get down to 12% body fat, 13% body fat. Um, you know, as far as the Letro and the Nolvidex, you know, using high dose Nolvidex works really good because it starves the estrogen receptors and kind of causes cell tissue death in that area. So, you know, 40 to 60 milligrams of uh, Nolvidex per day for, you know, a couple weeks, two or three weeks, um, you know, letrozole, you know, a, a few times a week and, you know, maybe a little bit of cabergoline too because needing to uh, kind of melt some of that more hard uh, granular tissue uh, which that works well with. And, you know, you should get results within like seven to 14 days. You know, it's if you haven't got the results and you're, you know, after seven to 14 days, you need to ask yourself, like, am I being aggressive enough trying to get rid of this? And then, um, you know, you if if the answer to that is is yes, you're being very aggressive with, you know, not being like, but I'm worried about crashing my estrogen, because obviously if you're worried about that at all, you're not going to be successful at shrinking your gyno. So if that's not the case, though, then, you know, at that point, you may need to get surgery to remove your guy now. Um, all right. So the next question is from Brett. Listen to your podcast, episode 46. What's the under, most underrated PED? So I added a thousand milligrams of metformin to start. And literally in days, I see my body changing when I wake up. I'm 50 and haven't seen changes like this in years. I'm on size and six IU split into three IU uh, each shots. Just wanted to thank you for that amazing info as I never would have added metformin. 
And when you, and also, when would you increase to 2000 milligrams of metformin? Uh, you know, I would, as soon as you weren't having gastrointestinal side effects. So the thing with metformin is that with almost everyone, when you start taking it, you get like diarrhea and like a lot of like gas and bloating, and it's really uncomfortable. And that lasts for 10 to 14 days. And if you take a lower dose, when you start like 500 milligrams or a thousand milligrams to start, this is less severe than if you like started at 2000 milligrams, but really like so like the fat burning effects of metformin are pretty good around a thousand milligrams or so a week or, or a day. But, um, but as far as like muscle fullness and looking freaky and looking like you're on insulin and growth hormone, you, uh, like looking like what the heck I'm at maximum pump when I'm not even at the gym, but my muscles look the same way that they do when I'm just walking around as they do when I have a maximum pump at the gym, even though I don't have a pump right now, you know, that look. That's a 2000 milligrams, you know, that, that the threshold between 1000 to 2000 is what causes the muscles to really get that bigger added size, more round thing going on to them, um, with, uh, with metformin. So my advice would be to get to 2000 milligrams as soon as you feel that you can tolerate it, um, you know, with gastrointestinal side effects. And so the thing is, you know, with, with metformin too, it really needs a synergy with growth hormone. Um, you know, taking metformin alone without growth hormone, just taking metformin and steroids together is not the same experience as taking steroids, growth hormone, and metformin. You know, just like taking growth hormone alone, you know, without steroids totally sucks and does nothing for your performance. You know, you have to have the steroids and the growth hormone for, met, for the metformin to work right, Okay. So, and, and to really give the amazing effects. So putting that out there. All right. B asks, what's up, Dan? I've been listening to your podcast and it's awesome. Also very helpful. I'm not done with it yet, but wanted to ask if I need to take any estrogen blocker every day, even though I'm not seeing or noticing any symptoms just to be on the safe side. I'm injecting a milliliter of test 300 and a milliliter of trend 200 every Tuesday and Saturday. So 600 tests, 400 trend a week. This is my second cycle on learning as I go. would appreciate your help. Thank you. You know, yeah, don't take the estrogen blocker every day. So, you know, you said that you're not seeing or noticing any symptoms, but should you just take it anyway to be on the safe side? So if you are taking estrogen blocker when you don't need to, and you're making your estrogen be lower than the normal range, so you, when you're using steroids, your estrogen should always be the same as if you weren't taking steroids. If you were natural, you want your estrogen to be in that same level as if you were natural when you're taking steroids uh, to feel the best, to function the best, to perform the best, to have the best sex drive and function as, you know, majorly. That's a major issue too. Uh, so um, majorly negative side effect, um, if you take too much, AI will be you know, very low brain energy, um, and killed sex drive. But if for some, you know, reason you avoided that, there's also another, uh, you know, reason not to have zero estrogen and take too much either. And that is the, uh, cardiovascular protective effects of estrogen. You know, women generally have less, um, uh, heart attacks, strokes, etc., than men or have them later in life. Uh, they, well, that's really what it is later in life because women lose their estrogen. Okay. So when women hit menopause, they lose their estrogen and that's when they start having, uh, you know, cardiovascular disease before that, they don't really have it, but men do have it sometimes like earlier in life and stuff. Uh, so estrogen has a protective effect on your heart. It has a protective effect on your veins, your arteries. It makes them more healthy, more pliable. You don't want to live a life with zero estrogen. You're going to hurt your your heart. <laughs> yeah. Reason not to have zero estrogen. It's not it's not a, a hormone you, you hate. You just like a drop of it. David asks, Hey Dan, love your content. And I've seen all the podcasts about metformin. As you said, there's a lot of shit on the internet regarding metformin. However, I was concerned about the possibility of lactic acidosis from metformin. I was hoping you could shine some light on it. Yeah, I'm happy to talk about that. Great question. So there are a few medicines in bodybuilding that cause like lactic acid 
well, you know, I don't want to say lactic acid that cause acid reflux that cause acidity. Okay. Uh, acid reflux is a symptom of overall body acidity. Um, but, um, you know, there are definitely, it's when you feel burning in your throat. And so there are definitely bodybuilding chemicals that increase this. You know, one would be trenbolone. It increases acid reflux. Another would be oral steroids, increases acid reflux. Another would be clenbuterol, major, major, increase, increases acid reflux. And then uh, metformin as well, you know, definitely increases acid reflux, more burning in the throat. So if somebody is taking something like, you know, trenbolone, oral steroids, clenbuterol, and metformin all at the same time, they can have major acid reflux problems where they're like having burning, serious, intense burning in their throat a lot and feeling like this is intolerable. So everybody knows that, you know, the first thing that I recommend doing in these situations is uh, basifying or alkalinizing the body, which, uh, you know, you eat baking soda. So you need to take a tablespoon of baking soda when you feel that acid and you need to drink it, um, you know, swish it around your mouth and, and drink it. Um, and that will neutralize uh, the acid in your stomach to start out. And then, you know, from there, your stomach, the baking soda will then be uh, digested into your system, which will then go around and alkalinize or deacidify the rest of your body, which the body functions in a slightly alkalinized state, okay, not a acidic state. So when your body is acidic, it's not in a healthy state. It's not able to function, you know, optimally. So you want to stay alkalinized. Baking soda, very healthy. Personally, I have it every day. I have one big uh, spoonful of baking soda every day. It's something I really believe in. <laughs> uh, you know, with metformin, the more you take, yeah, the stronger acid effect it has. You, you know, there's something going on with type two uh, with di- with type two diabetics and and diabetics in general where they, you know. Uh, keto acidosis, lactic acidosis, they're more susceptible to these things. And I'm really not an expert on diabetes. You know, I know the basics, obviously, and I'm able to, you know, tell you guys about, you know, how diabetes and insulin works, uh, insulin and bodybuilding, et cetera, you know, metformin, diabetes. Uh, But I'm not an expert on on diabetes. So I I actually don't know why um, uh, diabetic per- people are more sensitive to these, uh, acidic conditions than non-diabetic people. Um, but anyways, for, for the average guy, you know, if you're getting too much acid reflux, you're, you're going to want to stop taking the stuff that you're taking. Um, and, and, you know, for the average guy, you don't, you know, ha- get to a point where you're in some kind of a crisis, uh, with a uh, lactic acidosis or metabolic acidosis where you're in danger. Um, you know, if you don't have diabetes from doing something like taking metformin, um, you know, possibly if you were really pushing it, really pushing it and you were eating a lot of acidic stuff, you know, not taking your baking soda and just, you know, letting the worst acid reflux be around, you could run into some problems, but it'd be unusual. So for normal people, you're not, you're not really going to be running into a problem. And and when you notice acid, okay, you got to either take stuff out or you got to take baking soda. You know, it's one of those two options. That's basically how you deal with acid. And and there's, there's another thing people don't want to, don't want to, they don't want to subscribe to this thing about baking soda because there's a lot of stuff you can sell about acid reflux and, you know, baking soda is pennies, okay? It, it's worthless, it, it, you know? So there can be no money made on this. So you're going to hear a lot of shit talking on baking soda, okay? <laughs> but baking soda is like a natural universal remedy for so many stuff, you know? You can take all this expensive stuff that doesn't work very good, makes its own problems and issues and stuff, you know? Or you can just take baking soda, which is, you know, the best one that all the other stuff that, you know, costs money is based off of. All right, let's get to another question here. Um, Ben T asks, hey, Dan, question for you. Topic is cycle length. What is optimal cycle length? The debate seems to be short cycle, six weeks, rest six weeks, repeat, long cycle, six months on, two months off, repeat. When do majority of gains occur? Suddenly, supposedly majority of gains occur within six weeks. Androgen receptor down regulation after six weeks versus myostatin after six weeks. Does it even matter what mechanism is affecting us after six weeks? You demand operator. Um, yeah, yeah. So we'll just get to the the last bit of that. So there's 
uh, a lot of uh, research showing that the more steroids you take and the longer you take them, the more androgen receptors are created. So I know there's this big thing on the Internet, you know, where they say like, oh, your myostatin went up, your androgen receptors downregulated. But actually, none of that's based in reality. It's actually the exact opposite of the truth. It's it's just wrong. And it's, it's hard to believe, you know, because they're so adamant about that. And that's what you see everywhere. But according to the research, and, and this is pretty trustworthy research, you know, it's it's on receptors of the body and stuff. You know, it's not on medicine that pharmaceutical companies are going to try to sell, um, you know, higher dosages of steroids um, produce more androgen receptors um, up to and above 10,000 milligrams of testosterone per week, which has been studied in humans and hundreds of thousands of milligrams uh, per week of steroids, oral steroids, testosterone, etc., have been studied in dogs. Not everybody has uh, access to all this research, but I, I bought the book that the that the uh, <laughs> about steroid studies. You know, back in the '60s and '70s, you know, the companies that were researching all the different compounds. There's a bunch of steroids, you know, that never came to market. That Superdrol was one of them. That's why it's so good. Uh, that, you know, that was research, you know, talked about it in those books from back then, but then it never came out until, you know, the 2000s. Um, uh, yeah, so the other thing is that myostatin, so your brain, there's a difference between androgen receptors and, uh, like, receptors for your brain, okay? I want to go over androgen receptors a little bit more. So androgen receptors are formed to accommodate the amount of androgen receptors or of androgens in the body, okay? So the more milligrams of steroids you take, the more androgen receptors are formed, okay? And downregulation does not happen. It's a myth. It's not true. It's wrong. Okay? And then the other thing is that myostatin. Steroids decrease myostatin. So there's this also other wrong myth falsity that you know, when you go on a steroid cycle, your myostatin starts going up and that makes you stop your gains, which is another thing, you know, like where people say, like, it, this reminds me of metformin. And they're like, your IGF one goes down and then that stops your gains. And then it's like, yo, when has it even been conclusively shown, you know, since when was IGF one the king of muscle gains okay no this is just some freaking myth that people talk about on the internet or something you don't even know if the igf1 is important that much to your muscle gains or what kind of igf1 okay you know the kind that is actually really you know the most important is the intramuscular formed not liver formed not systemic but intramuscular intracellular uh igf1 that is made inside the muscle cell so yeah there are a lot of ways to confuse people with bodybuilding. You can really run with this stuff. You can really run with your science, and you can really confuse the heck out of people. Uh, so the androgen receptors go up when you take steroids. But he, So here's the thing and that people will notice is that the brain does not respond the same way as the body does with receptor formation or downregulation, etc. So people will notice when they go on Trenbolone, they feel very stimulated, um, but then as the cycle goes on, they kind of feel more normal. And then after they stop the cycle, you know, they may feel actually a dip in energy. And then, you know, they kind of, you know, make sense logically. Oh, you know, my receptor's downregulated. And now they have to get sensitized, you know, to a normal amount of stimulation. And that's right. That's actually correct. But those are brain neurochemicals and brain neuroreceptors, okay? Those are not androgenic hormone receptors that were causing that, that were caused by the trenbolone, okay? The trenbolone caused different levels of neurotransmitters like noradrenaline, adrenaline, serotonin, dopamine to be in your brain. And those receptors for noradrenaline, adrenaline, serotonin, dopamine, okay? Those type of receptors do downregulate in the brain. So you can, you know, from being on steroids, have brain receptor downregulation, but you will not have muscle receptor downregulation. It is a stone hard fact that the more steroids a person is on and the, um, the bigger, the bigger they are, the bigger they are and the more success they, you know, uh, it's, it's, it's so, you know, you don't want to tell people to do bad things. 
and, and I'm going to say this is, it's, it's unhealthy. Bodybuilding is unhealthy. It's going to be as unhealthy as you make it. Okay. And if you want to do stupid things like taking the most outrageous dosages of anabolics, you know, when you can make, uh, do- gains on lower dosages, that's going to be dumb. Okay. But, um, you know, I'm not going to sit here and lie to you and tell you that, you know, people that are on thousands of milligrams of steroids don't have better odds of succeeding with their bodybuilding than people who are not. Okay. That's just reality. Short cycle versus long cycle. You know, six weeks is not enough for muscle to sit in. It's just not enough. You know, six months, etc. I would lean more towards that. But the, the only thing that really matters is over time, are your lifts going up? You know, you can be, so say you're doing, uh, 275 on bench press for three sets of 10 reps over time doing your six weeks on six weeks off or six months on two months off which method is helping you increase that to 315 for three sets of 10 you know rather than than 275 or whatever you know it's this kind of stuff okay and and if you are make you've got to focus on the, these kinds of uh qualitative uh ways of assessing your progress Great question, operator. I enjoyed that. It, it was, it really needed a lot of clarity. All right, and the final question for today, question for the podcast from Anonymous, please. If one were to stay on 500 milligrams of test year-round and swap the secondary compound in and out, can that be sustainable? You know, I'd really say that that's a pretty sustainable way to do bodybuilding, you know. You know, when you go on cruise, for example, you get smaller, Um, so, you know, I've thought about this too, you know, what would be a sustainable way to do bodybuilding? And, you know, what I came up with is injectable one testosterone and then injectable two. And that's going to be a choice of either equipoise, uh, nandrolone, primobolin, um, dihydrobolinone, also called one testosterone, um, or Masteron, you know, a second injectable like that, that is not Trenbolone. And you're going to be pairing that at a similar dose to the testosterone and then taking a low dose of growth hormone and metformin, you know, that, that in, in my opinion, that's the most sustainable way to do bodybuilding, healthiest way to do bodybuilding, doing that long-term. Yeah, of course you could come off and do little cruises or little off cycles sometimes or something, but you know, you could also do things like if you wanted to stay on and because people do stay on, you know, we're not going to pretend like all bodybuilders, you know, there are a lot of bodybuilders who do not come off cycle. They don't. OK. Um, and uh, yeah, this is a reality. We don't have to pretend like this doesn't happen. It does happen. And everyone knows it. Everyone who's experienced beginners probably don't because the only thing they know is the Internet. Uh, but this this does happen. And, and if you're going to do that, uh, doing something like injectable one testosterone injectable two which is an injectable not trenbolone growth hormone metformin that's a you know uh in my opinion the most healthy and sustainable way that you can do that um and also you'll feel good on a cycle like that